Douglas Connolly writes, The call came late at night. A broken sob was followed by these words. Our son is dying. Will you please come to the hospital? As I made the trip in the dark that night to the hospital, I wondered what could I say to bring comfort to these heartbroken parents. Have you ever had that, been in that situation? Of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, it hasn't allowed such visits to the hospital this past year. But prior to that, many of, many of us experienced similar heartbreaking situations. There have been many of those in my uh, uh, career as a pastor. One involved bringing young children up to the hospital to be with their parents in the final moments of the mom's life. Another time, it involved being up at intensive care at the care unit when the family was coming back from dinner. This was the pre-cell phone era because I was notified and told that the mom had just died. And so they wanted me there to help tell the parents and the, the, the father and the children that the mom had just died. Another case involved a couple uh, that was part of our small group Bible study in Solon Springs, Wisconsin that my wife and I headed up for a number of years. And uh, they came every week and they were planning to come uh, to this particular week's Bible study and they didn't show up. And that was uncharacteristic of them. And at the conclusion of our Bible study, we got a phone call that they had been involved in a horrible car accident on the way to our Sunday night small group on that particular week. So, of course, I hustled right up to the hospital right away. Well, if you haven't had any of these types of experiences I just mentioned, just imagine that a close friend of yours is going through a personal crisis. If you were with that person right now, how would you try to help him or how would you try to help her? See, Jesus faced this very challenge as well as we see this right here in John chapter 14. In this text, Jesus is comforting his disciples who feel that their whole world right now around them is falling apart. And his basic message to them is, believe in me. He's instructing them to set aside their fears and to place their faith in him. See, in troubling times, our focus needs to be on Jesus. Jesus is the one who will see us through. Jesus is the one who will strengthen our faith. He will take away our fears. Jesus is the one who will always be there with us and for us in troubling times, and especially the troubling times that we find ourselves living in right now. Our focus needs to be on Jesus. This is our Lord and Savior's instruction to us. Jesus counsels us to have faith. You see, Jesus knows exactly what we are going through. He knows all about having a troubled heart. In fact, he experienced this himself many times. We learned this last week in John chapter 11. Remember in verse 33 when Jesus had come to minister to the family and friends of his very close friend Lazarus who had passed away? And when Jesus saw her, that's Mary, uh, weeping and the Jews who came along with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. And look, it says, and troubled. Jesus understood what it meant to live in troubling times. In John chapter 12, verses 20 to 36, Jesus predicts his death there. And look specifically with me at verses 23 through 26. Let me find it here. Take me a second. Uh, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And anyone who loves their life will lose it. And while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And then in verse 34, he went on down there to tell him that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then look at verses 27 and 28. Now my soul is troubled. He's describing his crucifixion here, and he says, My soul is troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus, reflecting just mere days before his crucifixion, says, My soul is troubled. Then chapter 13, verses 18 through 21, he predicts Judas is going to betray him. I'm not referring at all to, to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shares my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one after me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus understands what it's like to be troubled and to live in troubling times. And when we consider the circumstances of Jesus' life, the loss of his dear friend Lazarus, uh, his own treacherous and painful death, which included the scourging that led into the crucifixion, the betrayal by Judas, and of course, the denial by one of his close friends, Peter, we know without a doubt that we have a Savior who can identify and relate to the incredible pain and suffering that we sometimes experience in life. Three chapters later in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says there, I've told you those, these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble. He's saying this on the night, the eve of the crucifixion before his arrest. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, I know you're going to experience loss and pain in this life. I get it. I understand that. I'm going through it myself. I've been there myself. But take heart. Better days are ahead for you because I have overcome the world. Then we come to John 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. See, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. And these were the dark hours of the night in which Jesus was going to be betrayed, and then he's going to be falsely accused and tried and abused and ridiculed and mocked and scorned and scourged and tortured and then ultimately crucified. And in a very short period of time, the entire world of the 11 disciples was going to collapse into unbelievable chaos. And Jesus, whom they'd have given everything up for, was leaving them. Their beloved Lord, whom they cherished, was going away. And the ramifications of everything that Jesus had told them staggered their minds. They were undoubtedly confused, perplexed, and filled with fear and anxiety. And if you've ever lost a close loved one, you know what this kind of permanent separation is like. Now, imagine this with me. Imagine the feeling of losing someone who is perfect whose love, whose guidance, whose wisdom were all flawless. Jesus is about to be nailed to the cross. 
and absorb all kinds of abuse as well as carry the weight of the sin of the world. And anyone else in this situation would have been overwhelmed with their own problems, their own anxieties, and would not have been able to focus their attention on helping others. But that's what Jesus is doing. On the very moment when he's going to go through all of this suffering, he's comforting his disciples. You know, my wife Cindy, when she was in the throes of her battle with cancer in the early fall of 2008, she had just had back-to-back uh, surgeries to remove one thyroid from one side and the thyroids from the other side, which both had different kinds of cancer. And uh, then she had had uh, a radioactive iodine treatment to see if this had metastasized anywhere else in her body. And they discovered that she had five tumors in her bones in, in, in multiple places throughout her body. And she was given a stage four diagnosis of bone cancer. It looked really bleak. It didn't look good. And uh, the amazing miraculous part is uh, God either healed her or it became a false positive. Rochester wants to call it a false positive, the only case Rochester's ever had, and one of only three cases in the world that ever happened this way. And her case was presented in 2011 at an international endocrinology uh, conference in Washington, D.C., But here she is in the throes of going through all that treatment and that diagnosis uh, early fall of 2008, and her son Nathan gets very sick. And he doesn't want to tell his mom because mom's really sick, but he just thinks he's got the flu or something. Finally, late in the day Saturday, he starts throwing up uncontrollably. 30 minutes before we start our Saturday night service, which we had back then, so Cindy calls me. She's not feeling good, but she says, I got to bring Nathan to the hospital. Something's wrong. So she runs him up to the hospital, and I conduct and, and with everybody else and, and go through the Saturday evening service. Turns out he needed an emergency appendectomy. And he wasn't telling his mom he didn't feel good, and he was just in such pain. But the throwing up is what put him uh, over the edge. But there's mom, slumped over the gurney, trying to comfort Nathan when she feels so terrible. And Nathan, in tremendous pain, is trying to comfort his mom in those moments. And I rushed up right after, actually what happened is one of the men in church here uh, came home with me, left my vehicle there, drove us up, drove me up there so he could give Cindy a ride back so we wouldn't leave a vehicle there so I could stay late into the night when Nathan got out of surgery and I called my mom. She came down, was there with him early in the morning uh, when, he, when he was coming to uh, in the morning and here we are trying to do our best to comfort in those circumstances. But I want you to know Jesus was different. In the midst of his pain and his suffering, he was thinking of his followers and comforting them. Martin Luther called this passage the best and most comforting sermon that the Lord Christ delivered on earth. Not only were these verses a foundation for comfort for the early disciples, but they are for us as well. Jesus is telling us, set aside all your burdens, all of your fears, all of your concerns, all of your anxieties. All of the doubts that you carry around every day. Set aside your heartaches and your disappointments and believe in me. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in me. Now the Apostle John has already tipped us off in his gospel to Jesus' ongoing care. In fact, in John 13, verse 1, it says it was just before the Passover festival. Right before these events we've read about here, that Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Didn't matter what Jesus was going through. 
He loved everybody right to the bitter very end. And I must say at this juncture that the chapter break between chapters 13 and 14 is very unfortunate because chapter 14 is part of the ongoing discussion of chapter 13. Listen to verses 33 through 35. My children, I will only be with you a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He's, he's describing here a new kind of love. Because the love that's been described so far in the Bible was love for a spouse and love for your neighbor is as you love yourself. Love your wife, love your spouse, love your husband, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But all of a sudden now it's different. Jesus now is the model of love. Love as I have loved you. Follow my example. And by this all people will know that you're my disciples because you have love for one another. And he's going to go on to tell them, folks, we're not of this world. That's, not, we're not, we're, that's why we got to do this. We're not from this world. Look, verse 36. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You have to know this happens to be a present tense verb in the imperative mood, indicating the stopping of an action that's in progress. You've got to stop this thing right now. That's what he's saying. Stop it. Stop it now. Stop being troubled in your heart. This world is not your home. And the worst problem of all is you're forgetting me. You're forgetting about me, who I am. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Well, let's pause for a moment and ask right now, what is troubling you today? When you think about it, what comes to your mind? What is troubling you? Is it being unable to see your parents or grandparents because they're under lockdown right now in some care facility? Or is it the opposite side? Is it as parents or grandparents that you're unable to see your children or your grandchildren because of COVID? Is it what bothers you today? Coming to church or not being able to come to church because not everybody that's going to church now is following the CDC guidelines. And they're not masking up and they're not keeping socially distant. Are you troubled today in the other direction? Because you think, oh, this whole COVID thing is all hyped up, overblown issue of cultural Marxism that's trying to rob people of their freedoms? Are you a person who's troubled that the church is going along with the government guidelines and executive orders instead of taking a stand against the government? No! You're not going to take away our freedoms. Are you troubled right now by the lack of human touch? Hugs, handshakes, pats on the back, just plain human communication and closeness and interaction and intimacy. Interestingly, some studies are showing that introverted people and less expressive people and less socially active people 
aren't as hung up with wearing masks as more introverted, expressive, socially active people who can't seem to stand wearing masks. Are you troubled right now by this whole vaccine for COVID? Should I get it or should I not? Should a person put that kind of stuff in their body or not? And are you troubled by the potential restrictions that might be placed upon your freedom and your ability to travel and just plain opportunities that you may miss out on because you choose to not get vaccinated? Or are you one of the people that can't understand this craziness over vaccinations? Because you recognize that the thing that has saved more human lives in the history of humanity, it's not, it's not antibiotics, it's not surgeries, it's not nurses caring for other people, it's vaccinations. Vaccinations have saved more lives than anything in the history of America. I, I'm troubled that people can't see that. Jesus' answer to the troubles of life is to keep believing in God. Keep believing in me. He was encouraging his disciples to persist in the faith, to believe in him. And in like manner with these early disciples, we need to have full confidence in the existence of Christ, his love, his presence, his daily guidance, his faithfulness, even though he's no longer physically present with us. The apostle Peter said these words in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. In troubling times, our focus needs to be on Jesus. And our Lord's counsel to us is to have faith in him. Believe in me. Why is Jesus so adamant about this? Because Jesus is the solution for our troubled hearts. Look at verse 2. My father's house had many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you? I am going to, where, to prepare a place for you. Now, unfortunately, this verse has become very popular because of the King James' translation of it. Do you remember how the King James says it? In my father's house are what? Many mansions. And gospel songs have even been created. I've known that to be the favorite song of many people. You know, I have a mansion just over the hilltop. And I don't want to destroy anyone's theology here today or criticize their favorite Christian music. But the King James Version is not correct in this. The Greek word mane means rooms. That's what it means, is rooms. And the portrait here is of Herod's temple. And remember, in the history of Israel, Solomon built the first temple, and it was just incredible. David wanted to build it, couldn't, accumulated the resources. His son Solomon built the temple. But then the Babylonians, three-plus centuries later, came along and destroyed it and hauled people away off into exile, into captivity. Well, 70 years later, some of these exiled you know, uh, Israelites came back to the Promised Land, started rebuilding the temple, and then you know, sputtered out, didn't finish. And then 20 years later, Zerubbabel led a group that rebuilt the temple. But it was never quite to the same glory of Solomon's temple. But you had five centuries just about that passed by. Then came Herod's temple, just three decades before Christ. And he had a major temple renovation project. And this temple was the one that was destroyed less than 100 years later in 70 AD uh, by the Romans. 
And before the big renovation, King Herod had the priests and the Levites learn construction trades so that they could both work on the temple and worship at the same time. Because priests and Levites would come and lead uh, in the temple services two to three weeks a year. So they would come and work like crazy on the renovation and lead worship during that same period of time. Our Bible camp, Covenant Park Bible Camp, actually has a yearly men's retreat called a work and worship retreat. It's basically built following this biblical model. Now, some say that the remodeling of Herod's temple took 46 years. We, we honestly don't know that for sure. We get bits and pieces from historical references. We do know for sure that the lion's share of the renovations took over 10 years and wrapped up just prior to Jesus Christ's birth. And Herod's temple consisted of a house divided like Solomon's into the Holy of Holies. Uh, in the holy place, there was a porch. There was an immediate forecourt with an altar for burnt offerings. There was a court of Israel. There was a front court for women. There was around the whole thing proceeding a court for the Gentiles. There were chambers for officials and a meeting place for the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of Israel. And against the side walls around it were side chambers. 38 in total. And there were many rooms in the temple. And this is believed to be the figure of speech and symbolism that Jesus was using when he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. And by the way, the book of Hebrews, which Pastor James is teaching brilliantly right now in our men's Bible study on Wednesday mornings, it tells us that the temple was patterned after things in heaven. And the Father's house in glory has many dwelling places. Heaven is a place where God dwells and a place of security for the troubled heart. Verses 3 and 4 continues. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place to where I am going? Now we have a bit of bridal imagery that's now going on here. And marriages back then would be arranged marriages when a bride price uh, would be determined between a groom, uh, his father, and the bride's father. And then the groom would go home and start building an addition, a room onto the parent's home, so that when the time was right, when he was told he could go and get his bride, then he would bring her back. They would have a ceremony, a celebration, and, uh, and then they would live in this part of the house. And they often shared a courtyard or a backyard and sometimes would collectively work and eat together, prepare meals together, support one another. When the time was right, he could go get his bride. When everything was prepared and part of the marriage ceremony was to take a cup of wine to the bride and she would drink from it signifying that I will be your bride. I will marry you. Well, even the symbolism of the Lord's table points to this. Now, we've just seen the Passover celebration in John chapter 13. And uh, there the unleavened bread, the afikomen, which represents the haste in which the Israelites left Egypt, leaving the old life and the pagan gods of the Egyptians behind. In the New Testament, we have the new covenant of Jesus being the bread of life. We've learned that already in this sermon series. And when we receive Christ, who is the bread of life, we turn from the old life and we turn to God. And the old life of the old gods are gone. And we turn to Jesus. And the cup is Jesus exchanging his life 
on our behalf. It represents, it symbolizes His shed blood on the cross because without the shedding of of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And Jesus extends the cup to us and He says, will you be my bride? Everything's ready. Everything's prepared. Will you marry me? Thomas said to him, verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Well, the way was one of the early names for the Christian faith. In fact, six times in the book of Acts, it highlights this. And I'm going to give you just one example. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, which is the chapter about Saul's conversion, who changed his name. His name actually was Paul. His Gentile name was Paul. His Hebrew name was Saul. But he started going by the name Paul after his conversion uh, to Christianity. But it says here in verses 1 and 2, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now notice the definite article. It doesn't say not belonging to a way. It says belonging to the way. And Jesus is not simply teaching that he's a way or just pointing to a way, he is saying here that he is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God and to have your sins forgiven. There is no other path you can follow that will avoid judgment and the condemnation of your sin, which means eternal separation from God. This is why the book of Romans says so clearly in Romans 8, verse 1, for there is therefore no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. And Jesus is the truth. And you know, sadly, one of the casualties of the times we're living in right now is the truth. We see this every day regarding the pandemic. There's underreporting. There's overreporting. What actually works? What doesn't work? What is scientific? What isn't scientific? And we see this in politics as well. What is truly a crisis? And what isn't a crisis? What is truly COVID relief? And what isn't COVID relief? Who is really accomplishing what in this society? And there's spin, 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 spin that keeps going on in politics. And we see this as well with social tensions. What truly qualifies as domestic terrorism? Late this coming May now, this spring, through the end of May and the month of June, we're going to be having a five-week sermon series called Courageous Christianity where we're going to address biblically uh, the topic of race and racism because a lot of what is being said out there in our culture is not biblical, meaning it is not the truth. And the real casualty of all of our cultural tensions right now with all of the cultural Marxism that is going on is the truth. This is why Jesus and Christians need to be marginalized. They need to be ridiculed. They need to be pushed to the side of our society. And it's the reason that has to happen is because our society no longer traffics in the truth. Thus, they can no longer tolerate Jesus who is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the solution to troubled hearts. Now, God wants to make each one of us a part of His family. Just like any other relationship, though, if we don't respond, there is no relationship. 
So in order for us to enjoy all that God has for us, we have to say yes to his proposal. Allow me to say this another way. God is perfect, and we are not. The penalty for our rebellion, which expresses itself through sin, separates us from God. But God loves us so much that he paid the penalty for our sin through Jesus Christ on the cross in order to rescue us from our fate, eternal spiritual death, separation from God for all eternity. And the last time I checked, eternity meant forever. So responding to Jesus is really an individual decision. It cannot be made for us by someone else. No one else can do that. Jesus right now is asking each one of us to be part of his family. Are you ready to say yes to Jesus? Don't wait for a better offer to come along because, folks, I want you to know, you here and everybody listening online, whatever part of the world you're listening from right now, I want you to know that there will never be a better offer. There isn't one. So don't wait and do not wait to get your act together before you say yes. Say yes to the one today who is the solution to your troubled heart. Let's pray together. God, our Father, as we see in this Passion Week of Christ, just before this triumphal, the, uh, just before the uh, crucifixion, the arrest, the trials, everything that's going to take place in the life of Jesus, the hearts of his disciples are so troubled. God, our hearts are troubled. We're living in some extremely confusing times, and people can easily be at odds with one another. God, you've told us that that's not the answer. The answer is Jesus. And what we should have for one another is love for one another, that the world would then know that we're different, that we are your followers, your disciples. So God, I pray that we would embrace Jesus Christ as the Savior and the Lord of our lives, and we'd follow his example of faithfulness in this very, very troubled world, knowing that we can believe in you. The answer, the solution, is to place our faith and trust in you, to keep our focus always on Jesus. May you be glorified in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.